0: welcome 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 to the podcast of community bible church serving the rogue valley from central point Oregon. we are a multi-generational family equipping believers to be adopted in growing up and reaching out through the gospel amen i hope this morning as we begin you will take your bibles with me and you will turn to esther chapter 9 we will read a portion from Esther chapter 9 we're actually going to try and cover all of the remaining story 8 through 10 on the heels of last week and remembering that the the story is coming to its conclusion and where we left off last week was that this fateful day was at hand the day when the Jews would be attacked that would be free reign on them. And if you remember the story uh, from previous readings, you will remember that the Jews were given the opportunity to defend themselves, and they successfully do that. And so the portion that we read at the beginning this morning, starting in Esther chapter 9, verse 20, is the conclusion and the postscript to that. And so if you will read uh, in your copy of God's Word as I read it, aloud this morning. Uh, we will read starting in Esther chapter 9 to begin. It says this, And Mordecai recorded these things, that is the things that happened on those days, the month of Adar, uh, uh, days 13 and 14. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that they had been turned from, for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. And that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and what and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. God was good to the Jewish people. The Jewish people, in turn, gave memory of that deliverance. And the same God delivers us from our sin today. Amen? Uh, In our house, over the years, we've played a lot of board games. Maybe you have as well. So when, when the kids were little, we would play games like Guess Who, a matching game, or Monopoly. And as they graduated up in their ability to understand and compete, we would... We moved on to games like Settlers of Catan or Ticket to Ride. But in recent years, board games have become a little more intense, a little more competitive. And uh, it's so much so that a quick and easy and breezy family game night is no longer possible. In, In the new generation of board games, I don't know if you're aware of this, Uh, But sticker prices on the game can soar to well above $100 for one game. It's unbelievable. And these same games can be played. The same one game, one version of the game can be played for days or weeks or months, some of them even years. You thought those marathon sessions of Monopoly were something, right? But the intricacy of these games is such that what they're trying to do in many cases is they're trying to eliminate the element of chance no more rolling of the dice this these things are not even known like that 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 provides for an opportunity for chance to enter the equation for randomness to enter the equation and and, and True board gamers don't want there to be that element of chance that determines winners and losers, victory and defeat, success and failure. And I guess guess it makes sense, especially when you are dealing with the fate of the entire universe, as some of these games are. Nothing so random as the roll of the dice should determine how the game unfolds. And if you remember at the beginning of the book of Esther, it is the roll of a dice that determines the fate of the Jewish people and the timing of that fate. And centuries later now, as we read in this passage at the beginning, the Jewish people celebrate this roll of the dice and the role that chance has taken in their preservation as a people. This is what the book of Esther is all about at least on the surface. It's this festival that's inaugurated, commemorating the events that marked the deliverance of Jewish people. And not just their deliverance, by the way, their profit and their proliferation. And the festival is named after this instrument of chance that brought these events to bear. At this festival, the people of Israel read the book of Esther, And they recount the good fortune that came their way through coincidence and happenstance and the brave works of Esther and Mordecai. Now, as we've noted in our study throughout the book of Esther, and if you are an astute reader of this book, you're going to recognize that the author has structured the story in such a way to show that element of chance and yet point to a deeper purpose and a deeper reality. In fact, the author has written the whole story as a series of fantastic coincidences and ironic reversals. He's painted the story with randomness so improbable that if the story was proposed to a screenwriter as a movie script, it would be rejected out of hand because it was too far-fetched was too unbelievable. And so clearly the author is challenging the reader to look deeper at the unseen force behind all of the random events. And as believers, we know that there is this divine author who inspires the human author to point to the unseen force that is God's providence. Always present but always unseen. And the question I think that remains as we finish out this study is this. How are you and I going to read the story of Esther? Similarly, how are we going to read the story of our own lives? Is the unseen king working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes or are we floating adrift in a sea sea of random chance? And I think, here's the truth, is that people who see life as a series of unconnected randomness, unconnected coincidences, sometimes positive, sometimes fortuitous, but often unfortunate, live in a state of spiritual poverty. But God's people are, are to expect His providential work. And they're to think and act and live with this deeper understanding of reality. And for you and I, living and looking carefully for God's work beneath the surface can point us to that deeper truth behind the seemingly random circumstances of life. Uh, Let's pick up that story where we left off last week. We finished in chapter 7, but I want to take you just a little bit further back because if you recall this whole story turned on this one pivot point this one twist of fate in chapter six if you'll recall the king can't sleep it just so happened that the king had a little bout of insomnia and so to cure that insomnia he had his servants read from the royal chronicles and in doing so the king remembers and it is recounted to him that Mordecai has foiled an assassination plot and in that humorous scene you may remember that the king asks his right hand man Haman mortal sworn enemy of Mordecai how he can honor someone who has served him well and Haman answers right if you'll remember thinking, well, who could the king want to honor except for me? I'm his most faithful and loyal subject. I'm his right-hand man, so he must mean me. And so Haman suggests that uh, such a man should be honored with royal robes and a royal crown and paraded around the square on a royal horse. And so the king, in this twist of fate, assigns Haman to do just that for Mordecai the man against whom Haman has been plotting the entire time. Now, in the course of events, Haman's plot is discovered, and the king uh, uh, seeks to punish him. And last week, we heard the story of how Haman was dispatched in this really kind of violent and grisly manner. Uh, Our English text says that he was hanged. In the original language, it indicates that he was impaled on this pole that was 80 feet high and set out for all to see. But now, we are at the fateful moment in history, at least for this story. The whole plot of the story has been leading up to this moment when Haman's decree is scheduled to be carried out to eliminate the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Remember at the beginning of the book, chapter 3, Haman has rolled the dice, these poor to decide when to enact his plan for exterminating the Jewish people. And since that moment, this story, this book has hung on this question. Will the Jews be wiped out or will someone intervene on their behalf? Now follow along with me starting in chapter 8 this morning as the fortunes of Haman and Mordecai are once again reversed. Uh, Just as the king has empowered Haman to destroy the Jews back in chapter 3, now Mordecai is empowered by the king and he looks to save the Jewish people. And just like the beginning of the story, Esther has a significant role in this. And we'll notice at the beginning of chapter 8 that her fear and her uncertainty are gone. Before, uh, you may recall that Esther was a little bit, A coy and a little bit guarded about her identity, especially as a Jewish woman, her connection to Mordecai and so on. But here in verse 1, it tells us that Esther is no longer fearful for that. She's already told the king how she is connected to Mordecai. And then we read in verse 3 that Esther spoke to the king. Now you'll recall earlier in the story that Esther this, this was a whole plot point that Esther was fearful about speaking to the king because anyone who would come before the king without an invitation could be subject to the penalty of death. And now here, without a moment's hesitation it seems, according to the way the story is recorded, Esther steps out in front of the king and she, uh, she advocates for the Jewish people. And in verse 4 we see that the king has to... It's not Nothing has changed... The king still has to extend to her that scepter to let everyone know that what she has done as acceptable, he's accepted her audience before him. Before she had used her position to reveal Haman's treachery, and now she uses her position to ask for relief for her people. And look at the king's response, verses 7 and 8. It's kind of an interesting note. He says this, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict, uh, an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. What, what is he saying? If you just look at the tone and the text, he, he might be saying something like this. To, to both Esther and Mordecai who are there, look, you're rich. Y- you have power and position. Y- your freedom is somewhat guaranteed. Um, <laughs> I- I'm not sure why you want to go and make, stir up a bunch of trouble, but if you want to go, go ahead. Now this king that we've seen throughout the story is is a study in conflict avoidance. He's kind of, um, spineless. But on the other hand, isn't he right? Like Esther, you're, you're out of the woods. Yeah, sure, some people might get punished, some people might get defeated, but your position is secure. Mordecai's position is secure. Mordecai, in fact, is climbing the ranks. In, in a few verses, verse 15 and following, he's going to be appointed prime minister of the entire country And yet, they continue to work for the deliverance of their people. So they partner together to write this decree that echoes and opposes Haman's previous decree. All the Jews are to be eliminated in Haman's decree. Uh, According to Mordecai and Esther's decree, the Jews have been given permission to defend themselves. And if you were to go back to chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 and if you were to look at chapter 8 verses 9 through 14 these two decrees are almost an exact copy of one another that they follow the same pattern And, and and now note the reaction to this reversal verse 17 it's exactly as we would expect There was gladness and joy among the Jews. There was a feast and a a holiday. This is still nine months out from when the the fateful day would occur. Interesting look at the next next phrase there in verse 17. And many from the peoples of the country, not, not the Jewish people, the Persian people, many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What a difference a day makes, huh? And as we make our way now into chapter 9, the storyteller rolls forward the calendar just about nine months. And here we are at the date that Haman has set by the roll of the dice for the destruction of the Jewish nation. This fateful day has arrived and looked at, at chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what it says. On that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. See, the whole story has been building to this question. Can the Jews survive Haman's dastardly plan? And then the question behind the question is this. Is God's redemptive plan for all of history going to be stymied? And the answer comes here in chapter 9 in the verses of the text, verses 5 through 19. It records the results of that fateful day. It says in verse 6 that 500 were killed in the city of Susa, those who rose up against the Jewish people. The 10 sons of Haman that day were killed, verses 7 through 10. And then we read verse 13... That Queen Esther asks the king for an additional day to be added to this edict where the Jews could defend themselves and protect themselves and attack those who were their enemies. And in the end, verse 16, 75,000 people were dead. The Jews had not just won a victory but they poured it on in their victory. They'd they'd won this victory by a couple of touchdowns, if you will. Look at how the author records it first in verse 5. He says this, They did as they pleased to those who hated them. They had their way with them. And then towards the end of the story in verse 13, chapter 9, he says this, They let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Again, they took these men and they impaled them and they set them up for all to see who had won the decisive victory. They didn't just dispose of them, they put their dominance on display. And I think in the midst of this story, the author wants his readers to pause here. Standing on this bloody battlefield, wondering just how it is that these events have turned so dramatically. I think the moment is pregnant with meaning. I think all of these unspoken questions hang in the air. Are the events of life really just based on the roll of the dice? Do circumstances occur by coincidence or is there a greater order and meaning behind them? Is there someone who is orchestrating the events of history? And how you and I answer that question is determined by what is our worldview. And in turn, it, it determines how we interpret the events of our own lives and of course, as Christians, if we read the Bible, it provides us with all of the answers to these questions. And we are summoned to interpret the events of our lives through this filter. We know the truths about the plans of men and the plans of God. The wisdom literature talks about it all the time. Here's a couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 33, verse 10 says something similar. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. What has happened here in the book of Esther, what is happening in your life, what is happening in history is not by mistake. God has been orchestrating everything from the beginning according to his perfect providence. And yet there's another question that the reader of the story might ask. And it's whether or not, if you're reading the story with fresh eyes at all, all of this bloodshed is justified. I mean, really, if we read the story of of, of Esther, it's quite a violent book. It's got a a rating that's something more than PG-13 if the movie were made. And oftentimes we encounter that in the midst of the Old Testament. There's lots of blood and lots of violence. And isn't there another way if God is in charge of all this? I I mean, if Haman's desires demonstrated his bloodlust and his decree to wipe out the Jews in this massacre reflected a wanton cruelty, how was Esther and Mordecai's counter-decree any different? I think in order to answer that question, we've got to consider the character of God. Our God is a just God. Remember that Haman's decree was born out of prejudice and hatred, whereas the decree of Esther and Mordecai was anchored in self-defense. God defends the weak. He defends the disenfranchised. He's jealously going to guard his people and his plan. And certainly God is a God of love. He has a love for all of humanity, especially his chosen people. But that's especially highlighted against his justice and his holiness. His righteous anger is kindled against injustice and against treachery. Now, we're going to look at a moment. Esther and Mordecai may not have perfectly communicated or carried out their plan, their counter-decree, and their idea of self-defense. But their action was in defense of a people who were unjustly targeted. And those people were God's people. And so Esther and Mordecai, as they uh, make their plans and enact their decree, are reflecting God's righteous and holy anger at Haman's wickedness alongside his loving kindness for his special people. So now let us turn our attention to the the fact of how will people respond to this intervention, to God's intervention. And, and I think, again, in the story, there's a number of clues along the way that provide us with answers. First, let's look at how the people of Persia respond. Two times in the course of three verses, end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9, if you look at verse, chapter 8, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 2, the author points out this statement. He says, The fear of the Jews seized them. We read it once at the beginning. The fear of the Jews seized the people of Persia. Why were they fearful? Now certainly there had been a shift in the power structure in the capital it had gone from Haman the uh, the Jew the hater of Jewish people to Mordecai the Jew as being the Kings right hand man but some of them had already sided with Haman and were planning to carry out his murderous plot against the Jews and so the fear of the Jews seized these people but I want to suggest to you that there was something deeper to that I want to suggest to you that this was the fear of God. Look at how they react in uh, chapter 8, verse 17. It says that the fear of the Jews seized them, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Now, we might say, "Oh, well, that, that's a positive result. That's a good thing. But notice, there's no repentance there. There's no alignment with covenant promises and covenant obligations they respond out of fear, and they outwardly identify as God followers. For them, they're playing the hand that fate has dealt them, and they're responding to the circumstances as seem best to them. And I think that there's probably some here today who are doing the same thing. You haven't really taken God seriously. You haven't humbled yourself before God's holiness and asked for mercy. Maybe you haven't even contemplated your own sin. You've never thought about the fact that every single person, including me, including you, is deserving of God's righteous judgment, that same judgment that he executed against Haman. And just like Haman and his allies, you and I are deserving of God's justice. We are deserving of any punishment in our sin that God would visit on us. And yet the good news of the gospel, the good news of this story, is that God has provided a way of deliverance for us. God is about rescue. Not just the people of Persia and the Jews who lived there, but he's provided for your and my deliverance from the punishment that would um, be justly executed against our sins through Jesus Christ. And through faith in Jesus, you can come out from under God's condemnation, and instead of being tormented by the fear of God, that same fear draws you into reverence and repentance. Maybe like the people of Persia, you think that by playing the part of a Christian, you can slip in under God's radar. As long as you do all the things that are Christian-like, attend church and be good to other people and give an adequate amount of money. I mean, what more could anyone expect? That's what it is to be a Christian, is to do these things. Certainly no one can tell the difference between obedience out of obligation and genuine obedience, you think, to yourself. But God knows. You may fool every single person every single time, but you cannot fool God. And so stop playing the part of a Christian and turn to Christ. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your spiritual poverty and acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life and in that moment you can be saved. Truly, Powerfully, so that you don't have to carry the burden of doing what is right. You don't have to live in fear and uh, declare yourself one of God's people by your actions. Instead, you will be truly saved and converted and drawn to Him as one of His adopted sons or daughters. That's the response of the Persian people. What about the response of the Jewish people, these people who, in mass, had been saved? They've been celebrating this feast that we read about at the beginning, the Feast of Purim. They've been celebrating it for generations. It's part of their heritage. It's part of their culture. But it's very clear, by the way the author writes this, it's very clear if you look at their current celebration that they've forgotten the part about the unseen king and the story. Sure, they revel in their good fortune brought about by the events in the book of Esther, but they they don't acknowledge the giver of all good gifts. And if you were to look at the celebration of Purim in modern times, um, much of the traditions, many of the traditions, revolve around feasting and celebration. And in fact, some of the material I looked up flat out stated the event is an excuse, uh, basically, for a time of drunken revelry. Now, to be sure. The people read the book of Esther, they emphasize acts of charity just as the story encourages and challenges and mandates for those who are less fortunate, but the the traditions are more focused on remembering the good fortune that has occurred in their heritage, the chance circumstances that brought about their deliverance rather than a focus on God's work in delivering his people. And I don't say that to, to condemn them, because you and I can be like that, can't we? we? We celebrate holidays, we celebrate Christmas and Easter, as we did a couple of weeks ago, and the traditions of those seasons sometimes overwhelm the significance. The trees and the eggs and the family photos and dressing up and the family meals and the presents are the substance of what we celebrate and those overwhelm the significance of what we're truly looking at. Jesus Christ, born as a baby in Bethlehem, living a perfect life, crucified the God-man in Jerusalem, and raised again to conquer sin and death. Those things are either forgotten or they're sidelined, as we do the, all the traditions that we've put in place over the year. More than that, right? Every Sunday... It's not just one Sunday a year that we talk about the risen Christ. Every Sunday we gather together to celebrate the risen Christ. And yet so many times we approach that with a casual attitude. Maybe we even ask the question on occasion, are we going to go to church today or not? I don't know. We went last week, maybe we'll skip this week. Because it's about randomness. We've become casual because we've forgotten that this is the celebration of the greatest event the world has ever known, the defining event of our lives if we're believers. That's why we come together in corporate worship today to raise our hands and to raise our voices and to acknowledge the God who has rescued us from sin. Now, what about the people of God? How do they respond? Remember, we, we, we've mentioned over the weeks that Esther and Mordecai are not the heroes of this story. God is. And just because they are part of God's chosen people does not mean they are without fault. This is where many of us will find ourselves this morning. These characters, Esther and Mordecai, even though some would see them as heroic, are still human beings with faults. And imperfections for instance look at the story again when Mordecai is elevated to that position of power he becomes the prime minister if you will he seems to revel in it just a little too much I want to point this out to you in chapter 9 verses 3 and 4 back in the story the counter decree has been issued for the Jews to be able to defend themselves and the author records some of the reaction as the fateful day is fast approaching He says this, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. Now look, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Previously, it was the fear of the Jews that had seized them, that had fallen on the people. I think that's really a metaphor and a, 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 a code word for the fear of God. But as Mordecai grows in fame and power and position, notice that some of that attention gets redirected to him. And as admirable as Esther is in this story, she also shows her humanity On that day of reckoning, she really displays a vindictive side by asking the king to extend that decree, that counter decree, an additional day. God had justly provided this opportunity for the Jews to defend themselves, but Esther pushes their advantage and moves on from defense to revenge. And I think... If Esther and Mordecai had been the heroes of this story, these would be difficult details to reconcile with heroic character. You see, human beings have this tremendous capacity to do wonderful, courageous things, and yet left to our own instincts, we're prone to display a self-serving instinct that is at the heart of sin, Our reaction to circumstances has to be filtered through our understanding and submission to God's character. We can't just look at circumstances as individual series of occurrences coming our way and react to them out of instinct. When trials and difficulties come our way, if we're focused on the circumstances and we're reacting to those, we're going to display our humanity. Maybe, for instance, you would find yourself in a place where you are challenged by debt. You're wallowing in financial peril because of unexpected bills that have come your way. Nothing that's your fault. So you cry out to God for help. And then all of a sudden, you get this unexpected financial windfall. Maybe it's an inheritance. Maybe it's a raise at work or a new job. Maybe it's a stimulus check. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. And that pressure is relieved for just a second and what's our instinct? To forget about God. To forget that we've cried out to Him. To forget that we've declared our dependence on Him. We forget that He is the author of all circumstances, good and bad. And our response to Him, look, our response to Him in good times is just as important as our response in bad times. And the same could be tr- said true about relational difficulty, or health struggles, or any other number of things. So often we treat God like um, that, that resource that we have in times of difficulty. And we reach out and we seek to use that resource, but when times even out and when times are good, we put God on the shelf until the next crisis comes. God is interested and invested in all of our lives. Now look, I want to acknowledge there are some positive reactions, especially when we look at Esther and Mordecai to this situation. We've seen great faith and great courage from both of them. Esther learned to trust God in those early days. In her first Interactions with the king and, and we see in this story as as she comes to, to to ask about that counter decree that she displays those lessons that she learned early on. She approaches the king with confidence and bravery. She is not willing to sit by and watch her people be eliminated. Mordecai too responds with great courage and wisdom. He stands right alongside of Esther and he seizes that moment. He actually compiles and writes the decree with the help of the scribes in favor of counteracting Haman's decree. Even in their safety, even when times are good for Haman or excuse me for Esther and Mordecai, they continue to fight for the rescue of their people. So let me ask that of us. You and I are safe in the arms of God. You and I have confidence in our salvation if we have, through faith, declared our allegiance to God. Are are we too safe in that? Or are we willing to risk comfort and convenience to proclaim to those in our circle the good news of salvation? I wonder how long it's been for you or for I since we prayed and planned and strategized for that divine appointment with our friends and our family and our neighbors who need to hear about God's impending judgment but God's gracious offer of rescue. If we understand that God is working everywhere always behind the scenes we should boldly and courageously step forward just like these two into the gap and join God where he is working. Who knows? He may use me. He may use you as an instrument to bring about someone's salvation. What could be a greater joy and privilege? There's so much that we can learn from Esther and from Mordecai. we need to be bold in our risk-taking for Christ. We, we need to act confidently, knowing that in the end, it is God's desire to rescue His people. You see, we can't, can't approach life as this series of random events, and if it happens, it happens. Whatever comes my way, I'll deal with it. It's not a roll of a dice. If that's the way that we approach things, we are going to chase that fleeting feeling of happiness and peace and security and purpose and meaning from one moment to the next. If we're Christians, we need to live with purpose. We need to live with a purpose that comes from seeing the providential God ordering every moment in history and even if God remains that unseen actor in our lives we know he's always working behind the scenes and I would suggest to you that as you grow in your relationship with him as you grow in your experience with him you are going to grow in your ability to recognize his hand and when we do that our actions and our reactions are going to reflect that understanding we're going to have that deeper understanding and deeper purpose to reality. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge that. You are sovereign. Nothing surprises you. You have designed and directed history from the very beginning, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful that part of that design and direction is that you would save those who would call on you. And Father, we ask that as we recognize that and we recognize the ordering of those circumstances to bring about the good for your people, God, that we would be trusting in that and that we would join join you in your plan. We say thank you this morning. We respond in praise and worship and we walk away with the confidence that whatever happens to us outside the doors of this church building, God, is is something that you've equipped us for and prepared us for. And further than that, God, you have designs for all the people who exist outside the doors of this church building. Your desire is to save them, to rescue them. And God, we can be part of that plan. We thank you for that, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.